Hi, Conlangers. So, I'm sure a lot of people have noticed that there hasn't been Conlangery for quite a while. Uh, it's just due to a lot of changes in my life that have happened over the past year. And I don't know what the future of the podcast is right now. I really, really do want to continue it. However, I would also love it if I could make my entire job be being a conlinger on the internet. And I'm not sure if that's something that can work out. But I did record this episode several months ago. I apologize for some issues with sound quality. It seems to be there was some issue with Ringer when I was recording. But I have an episode for you about whistle registers. And I hope that you enjoy that. I also will note that there was an incident where Conlangery episodes went down. I want to take steps so that we never have a risk of the episodes getting lost. So do not worry about that. Thank you. To Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Oh, with me, where are you? Uh, I am in Orem, Utah. All right. In Utah, we have Logan Kersley. I have Logan on because he has a very interesting project going on uh, involving whistling. Um, and we'll get into that. First, I do want to say um, it's been a while since we had a conlangery, and uh, I just want to say that's that's entirely me. I have just not had the bandwidth to actually get that on. I am uh, I just started a new job and had another baby, and well, my wife had another baby, but yeah, we have. Three kids now, and we are in the process of buying a house. So bear with me. I'm going to try to bring Conlangery back. Um, I also was not able to keep up with Lexember. So unfortunately, this year, I'm not doing the the Lexember wrap-up. Uh, but for what I did see of it, there was some good stuff. I, I wish I could have done my regular, like, retweeting everybody's words, but it just didn't happen this year. But that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about, and I, Logan, I'm going to let you explain what what uh, the phenomenon we're talking about is, but first I want to just make a note on, terminology. I'm going to use the terms whistled speech and whistle 
um, register. I know mm -hmm. that in the literature, the term whistle language is used a lot, but I kind of disagree with it for a few reasons. And I think you you probably will have an understanding of, of why that is from your own research. Yes. So the the phenomenon in question is usually referred to as whistled languages, um, but they, as they occur naturally, uh, there are no languages that exist primarily in the whistled mode. Um, so yeah, I, I also generally prefer the term whistled register or whistled mode. Um, they effectively act as codes uh, that provide an alternative representation of a primarily normally spoken language. Um, I don't really have a whole lot of good uh, terminology for referring to speech that is not transposed into something other than regular speech. So uh, normal might be problematic in some ways, but it's the best I've got. There's, there's normal speech um, that, that you can represent in the IPA, uh, and then whistling is an alternative representation of that. Right. So um, to use a term I've seen some deaf people use, it's an oral language gets transcoded into whistles from the regular, for from the usual, um, I don't know, like the vocal tract is so complex, they're mostly pulmonic sounds, but not all of them, yeah. right? So it's um, right. From, from the usual vocal tract sounds. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, and, and that's an important thing. I You could kind of liken it to writing in that it is mm -hmm. a representation of speech that arises with certain conditions. With writing, it is it arises from larger populations needing a more durable um, record of things, whereas whistled speech, it seems like it's mostly people who spe are speaking over a large distance or in an environment where distance causes the sound to be attenuated, like dense yes. forest and such. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like the, the most famous whistle register that uh, people may have heard of before is Silbo Gamero, which is spoken in the Canary Islands. Um, and that is a very mountainous region. So people use it for communicating between mountains across valleys where it would be very arduous to just actually walk over to the person you want to talk with. Um, they, they also show up in Africa where people need to communicate over very long distances of savanna or desert. Um, and in uh, the Amazon rainforest and uh, a few other places, uh, again, where there's, there's a lot of either background noise or an environment that attenuates sound transmission. And whistling is actually very comparable to, to writing in a couple ways. It's uh, much like literacy. It is a mode of language that 
is obviously possible for people to pick up fluently, but that you don't acquire naturally. Um, like babies mm -hmm. don't grow up and acquire the whistling register as their L1. You, you, you would say it's learned and not acquired in the, yes. in the parlance of sort of developmental yes, linguistics. Yes, exactly. Um, and because of that, uh, I, I don't know of any documentation of whistled registers that have come about specifically for uh, this purpose, but they frequently get repurposed uh, as a, literally as a form of secret code because some some foreigners might show up in your village and acquire your language just by hanging around long enough. Uh, but if you don't actually intentionally teach them the whistled form, uh, then they're probably not going to get it. Uh, so it's, it's a way for some communities to maintain their in-group status and uh, exclude outsiders from their communication. That's really interesting. Um, I I think the the distance thing is a uh, a very important component. Either distance or oh, an environment where where sound is absorbed, like a forest. Because yeah. I saw in one of your papers. Uh, unfortunately, I have not had time to review all of the stuff because life is crazy. Uh, well, that's fine. Paper, <laughs> I've done it yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. What, one of the papers you mentioned I do want to see say is, like, the the distance factor really is a big thing, because they mm -hmm. mentioned, and this was in a specific environment, and the numbers would vary, but they sort of had, like, mapped out, okay, at a certain distance, normal speaking voice works, and then shouting. And the way it was described is like shouting gets you more distance, but after a certain distance, shouting becomes too stressful on your vocal tract, and mm -hmm. it's just you can't you can't get any louder without damaging your voice, and yep. that's where whistling takes over, and whistling can take you very long distances. Yeah. Yep. Several miles, in fact. Um, the there's. Uh... Actually, one more one more uh, parallel between writing and uh, whistling that is relevant specifically to the the strain on your vocal tract from trying to communicate modally uh, normally over very long distances, um, and that is writing generally requires the use of specialized tools, um, you know, artificially produced paper. Uh, pens, pencils, uh, engraving tools, whatever. Um, and the same is sometimes true of whistling, uh, which, which uh, is a good segue into describing what used to be one of my major misconceptions about how whistling speech works. Whistle registers usually um, will permit people to whistle just without any tools. Like you, you can whistle without any tools. Um, but the precise, yeah, there you go. There's an example. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the precise means in which the whistle is produced does not matter. 
Um, mm -hmm. And as a result, whistling is frequently done using separate tools in order to to make it easier. Um, so there's the various uh, variations on uh, finger whistling, where you you use a finger to modify the the shape of your oral cavity to produce whistles. Um, and then some people, uh, I, I don't know how exactly it works, but there's a means of using a folded leaf, blowing through a folded leaf to produce whistles. So you, you can really easy, easily produce that tool in most environments where people live. If there's plants around, pluck off a leaf, fold it in half, and that provides you another way of whistling. Um, but even like fully artificial musical instruments um, are also viable methods of producing whistled speech. So you can, if if you're not good at whistling on your own without a tool, uh, you can just get like a 10 cent slide whistle and blow really hard through it. Um, and it produces a loud noise with an adjustable frequency. Um, and that's really all you need. And so because of all of this, I, I don't know which direction the the causality goes necessarily, um, but uh, because of this variation in production methods, um, whistled registers universally do not care about the actual timber of the sound. Uh, the only thing mm. that matters is the primary frequency and amplitude. And that, that was something that I totally would never have guessed before I actually started uh, seriously studying whistle languages and how they work. Because um, the, the way that I got into it was just kind of playing with interesting mouth noises as linguists yeah. do. <laughs> um, dri driving in the van to pick up one of my kids from daycare and not having anything else to do while by myself in the car. And I started experimenting with interesting mouth noises and various ways that I could whistle. And I thought, oh, wow, there's there's actually a bunch of different, like very distinct ways that you can articulate a whistle um, that are auditorily distinguishable. Like you could totally build a language that is not representable in IPA by using all of these different possible whistling phones. Um, and then I went yeah. and looked up how natural whistle registers actually work and nope they do not care no. um so that that might be an interesting approach for somebody else to come up with an exotic language um but if you want to do a naturalistic whistling language it's it's just a single frequency channel and that's all that matters and i have a feeling that there's a good reason for that that different methods for whistling probably work better for different people because i yep. can whistle with just my mouth <laughs> stuff like that but mm -hmm. i don't i i've never understood how you do it with your fingers so it's like either i didn't learn learn that way or i don't really or or like it's not what's su most suited to me you're talking about musical instruments reminded me reminds me i don't think they that this is not whistling itself but there's uh the mung have 
I see it called the split horn looking it up, but they have a, a horn mm -hmm. like it, uh, a horn type instrument. It actually has um, like several uh, resonating uh, sort of uh, stems coming off of it that mm -hmm. can uh, at least I have heard can be used to like speak through. Um, so that could mm -hmm. be another parallel. It's not the same thing, but people do come up with these alternate registers for spoken language that yep. will carry, uh, not just with whistling. Um, well, and, and Hmong does have a whistle register. Yeah, so it's probably related somehow. Yeah. And uh, so before we go into it, I found um, I, I will splice in here a, a file I found, uh, I'm going to give credit right right here since it's uh, uh, CC BY, it looks like. It's, uh, it's um, yeah. from the... The, the CIFRIA oh. sample from Wikipedia? Yeah, the yes. CIFRIA, SUFRIA. Um, it is a, a Greek whistle register, so... Uh, Mm -hmm. Presumably speaking some dialect of Greek, and it's from the UCL Whistled Languages Project. Um, <laughs> so this gives you a an example of like what a conversation can sound like in a whistled language and you can hear these complex utterances that this really is the language and it's it's interesting mm -hmm. to me because i remember talking to my advisor once and mentioning whistled languages and he's like he said he didn't believe that those existed and i'm like there's lots of research on this, and I he never elaborated, but I kind of wonder if he had the misconception that this is that people are talking about these as languages when they're not. They are a different modality for an oral language. Yes, and um, yeah. and the there are at least forty natural whistle registers documented. There are probably a lot more in existence that just have not yet been documented in the scientific literature or that have existed throughout history and died out without having any record of them preserved. Um, that's that's actually one way in which they are very much not like uh, writing and literacy. Um, whistle languages seem to pop up quite easily with independent invention all over the place. Um, whereas writing was invented like maybe four times. Yeah, or maybe maybe more than that, but uh, we have evidence for like four or five. <laughs> yeah. Independent but, and, inventions. And anyway, but you know, four or five, even six, it, it's definitely a lot less than 40. <laughs> yes. And, and there there probably were more that we don't have recorded because, like, 
also writing leaves behind evidence of itself. Whereas whistle mm -hmm. languages, the only thing we could have to go on before we were able to record things would be descriptions in text that may or may not be very, very linguistically sophisticated and may be written by people who were not people who actually spoke the languages, especially like back when, you know, these were scholars and scribes who probably didn't, you know, go herding the goats and have to actually do the whistling to yep. communicate with other people. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's go into the mechanics of how speech is represented in whistling then, and then we'll get into your project. Okay. How speech is transposed into the whistling modality uh, varies quite a bit between different languages. Um, there are a few fairly consistent trends for what kinds of consonants turn into what kinds of whistles, but they are in in no way standardized. Uh, different communities come up with different ways of representing the contrast that they find most significant. Um, but there is one fairly constant uh, division between types of whistle languages um, that corresponds very cleanly to different types of normal oral languages. Um, and that is whether or not the base language has lexical tone. So languages with lexical tone uh, get transposed into whistling in completely different ways from languages that happen to lack lexical tone. Um, so, uh, so, and from what I'm understanding is that if the language is tonal, the whistles will represent the tone. They will, they will stand in for the F zero frequency, right? Yes. Um, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas for non-tonal languages, they are representing vowel quality, and uh, mm -hmm. maybe you can expand on this and and help me out with the concept. But it seems like what happens is with that process, people make something approximating the shape of the vowel that they would use with modal voicing, mm -hmm. but whistle it. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. It's it's a little bit more complicated, um, but the, that's the general idea. So, uh, if you're if the language has lexical tone, then the the whistled form will follow the tones primarily, um, and just throw out vowel quality completely, um, but. It's not just a split between following F0 versus following a higher uh, formant. Uh, the tone takes really takes center stage. Um, and so uh, languages without lexical tone put a lot more effort into also transposing consonants and not just the vowels. 
the languages, uh, tonal languages that have whistle registers may transpose consonants as well, uh, but they, if they do, they will tend to do so with less fidelity. And so uh, the the most extreme example that I know of uh, is actually Pirahan, which is an extremely uh, contentious language to talk about, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to go into anything about the various claims about Pirahan syntax. Just, talk about the um, here. Yeah. <laughs> you, all, um, you only need phonology for syntax, for, for uh, whistle registers. Right. Um, so Pirahan uh, has two lexical tones, but based on the consonants that occur in a syllable, it has five distinct syllable lengths. Um, so you, you can mm -hmm. have just a short CV syllable, uh, you can have a longer CVV syllable, uh, but then depending on what other consonants end up getting inserted into that syllable, there's three additional distinctive quantities for syllables. Um, and okay. so that... So we're talking that, about Yeah, so that, that length information is the only information about consonants that gets preserved in the Pirahan whistle register. So you uh, you have the variation in the amplitude envelope that uh, shows you where the syllable boundaries are, um, but within each syllable, the only thing that is preserved is how long that syllable envelope is and what the tone melody inside it is, and all the other consonant information is completely eliminated. Whereas with non-tonal languages, uh, you generally don't get perfect representation of the consonants, uh, even, even in situations where there are enough available whistling distinctions that you could, um, they just don't, they don't seem to get used that way. Uh, consonants are almost mm -hmm. always confused a little bit. Um, so you do still get some homophony and loss of information when going into the, the whistle register, which has to be made up for with conversational context. Uh, but there will be some attempt to preserve consonant information uh, in those cases. Um, but getting back to just how the vowels work then, uh, for for non-tonal languages, for the most part, the representation of whistled vowels will follow the ordering of normal spoken vowels according to the F2 formant frequency, uh, which is mm -hmm. approximately uh, equal to backness. Uh, so the farther the farther back or forward. Uh, a vowel is produced in the mouth, um, that'll determine how it gets ordered in the whistling frequency range. But those, uh, those actual frequencies are not preserved exactly, only the ordering. Um, and so right. the, the precise frequency range tends to get shifted way up. So they don't actually directly correspond to the same frequencies that you would get in normal speech. Um, additionally, 
there is some weird stuff going on with production versus perception. Um, so, for example, uh, Silvo Gamero, uh, the A-whistled uh, adaptation of Spanish, uh, only has two phonemic vowels in the whistle register, um, even though there are five phonemic vowels in Spanish, um, because the the vowels just get divided up into two groups that have that are sufficiently similar to each other and have a sufficiently large gap in between them. And those all get turned into, you know, everything within one of those groups gets represented the same way perceptually in the whistling register. Turkish, on the other hand, has a lot more vowels than Spanish does. Um, but it also has vowel harmony rules which actually cuts down on the number of distinctive vowels that could occur in any particular slot. Um, so they, so whistled Turkish gets away with having three uh, relative vowel frequencies in its whistled mode. But if you look at it from the perspective of what whistlers actually produce, rather than what listeners to whistling are reliably capable of distinguishing, whistled Turkish speakers actually produce statistically distinct frequency ranges for all of the vowels. They oh. just happen to have, like they, they have distinct targets um, that are, that are like the, the center of the, the space in which they produce any particular vowel if they do it multiple times. But the standard deviation of what frequency they actually hit on each attempt is sufficiently large that the that adjacent vowels tend to blend into each other so they can no longer be reliably distinguished in perception. So the the maximum number of distinct vowels that that you can maintain uh, for perceptual purposes, is probably like four or maybe five. Um, and of course, now that I've said that on a, on a recording that people are going to listen to, then so somebody's going to publish a paper that documents a, a whistled languages that has six or seven actually distinct vowels. But um, yeah, I mean, ba based on what I've actually, the, the literature that I've actually found on languages that are already documented, like you really don't get more than about four vowels preserved that are perceptually distinct. Um, mm -hmm. And one of those is uh, might end up being a schwa, uh, which is another, another feature of whistled Turkish. There are three distinct perceptually uh, distinct bands uh, for mm -hmm. specific vowels, but there's also a schwa vowel uh, whose range overlaps all of the others. Um, and the idea of the schwa vowel is basically that it it is a vowel. It behaves in the phonotactics as a vowel uh, to break up consonant sequences, but it doesn't have any specific vowel frequency target. So it just kind of floats around in whatever the closest frequency range is to the consonants that surround it. That's really interesting, especially since, like, 
vowels are sort of fuzzy in the first place. Uh, I think I've mm-hmm. said on here, like, as conlangers, we shouldn't focus too. We shouldn't. We shouldn't worry too much about the exact values of vowels because they don't have exact values. They're sort of a cloud of possibilities yep. within the the vowel space. But then, uh, Turkish does have what is it like eight vowels uh, that are? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. Pretty valuable to distinguish. To have them collapse into three. That is. And and also have a schwa that like is is uh, non-distinct is very interesting, and I think that this is all of it that you've just said is an illustration of part of the trade-off that makes it so that we don't have whistle languages as a, a thing in itself. Is that yeah? Like yes, a whistle register helps you when you're communicating along large distances or where the environment is not conducive to carrying your own voice far enough, Mm -hmm. but you lose a lot of the ability for distinction that you have with your regular pulmonic airstream to actually make distinct sounds. Plus the fact that it is loud and it's going to be loud. So you can't whisper and all of these things. It just makes sense that this is something that develops as an additional way of speaking rather than a language itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since you mentioned whispering, that's a a good segue into uh, talking a little bit about Pitahan again. Um, because in addition to the whistling register, Birahan has a humming register, uh, which mm-hmm. is not exactly the same. Uh, the, the transposition is, is slightly different, but they're very close. And it turns out that the humming register is used as a replacement for whispering, because it, it's, oh. like, it's like whistling in that you're reduced down to a single frequency channel and amplitude modulation and nothing else. Um, But you can do it quietly. Yeah, yeah. Although sometimes a true whisper is not what you want. Sometimes my my daughter, if she's whispering something to me, it is a true whisper, which in linguistics, this is your glottis is all the way open, mm-hmm. and you are there is no vibration at all from your vocal folds. And yep. in the environment where we are, I cannot understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially if you're trying to 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 uh, whisper a tonal language, uh, doing a true whisper eliminates all of that tone information. So, um, and Pinahan is a tonal language, so uh, using humming in place of whispering. Uh, is a much better trade-off. There, there have been many discussions in my grad school classes about how is it that Chinese people can understand each other whispering? Because, mm-hmm. like, and it's like, well, the tone also changes amplitude, so they can pick up tone from amplitude and stuff like that. But it's, you know, it's a very interesting thing how much whispering 
collapses distinctions too. But anyway, mm -hmm. we're talking about whistling. So right. <laughs> we've gone over, all right, if you're a tonal language, you're primarily concerned with vowels, um, with with the tone of vowels, whereas if you're non-tonal language, you're encoding vowel quality. But in in the vowel quality, you're it's still lossy. Yep. And everybody is lossy in consonants to to some degree or another. Either yeah. you completely eliminate it or you preserve some distinction, not all of it. Um, yeah. What? How do consonants work? By the way, I I believe the one paper I was looking at that you linked is like it's transients in between vowels usually. Yes. Um, so consonants. Consonants can work in a few different ways, but the the overarching theme is that you are transposing the contours of formants in between vowels. Um, so if, if you look at regular speech on a spectrogram, uh, the vowels tend to be like pure vowels will just be solid bands at a single set of frequencies. Um, diphthongs will have some smooth motion in the, the shapes of the formants. Uh, but consonants with, with some exception exceptions, most consonants don't have a unique frequency pattern. Um, that you can identify them by. Rather, consonants, when they show up on a spectrogram, uh, frequently are, are acoustically realized as directions for how to modify the shape of a vowel formant. Um, so, and th this, is really, uh, this is really obvious with uh, basic stops like P, T, K. Um, so a P, uh, is going to show up on a spectrogram as a sharp rise at the beginning of the syllable towards the vowel target, or a sharp drop at the end of a syllable off of the vowel target. Um, and the, the precise location of where that frequency ends up isn't important, and it will change depending on what vowel the P is next to, but it's that uh, shoot up and drop down at the end that is the P. Um, or if you have an intervocalic P, uh, then you'll have a sharp drop down on the preceding vowel and then a rise onto the next vowel. Um, whereas with a T, uh, it's, it's basically just flipped. So Ts look like drops into the vowel target and then rises away from the vowel target. Um, and then you might have some aspiration noise. There may be varying periods of silence, the voicing bar turning on and off and, and all that. Um, but all, all that other stuff doesn't really matter when we're just talking about how do you transpose into the whistling mode. So um, the, the way that you transpose consonants is basically you look at that spectrogram and you see how does the shape of the vowel formant that you are transposing uh, get modified. And then you just do the same thing to the, to the frequency curve of your whistle. Um, 
And that that might actually explain a little bit of why tone languages don't preserve consonants as much, um, because they are not preserving the vowel F1, F2, F3 formants. They're just preserving the F0, uh, the base frequency, and consonants don't affect that very much. Um, so if, if that's the line that you're transposing, you're going to miss the consonant information. Yeah, the F0 is going to be much more affected by the previous and following tone in a tone language than mm -hmm. by anything in consonants. But I, I see where you're going because uh, it's been a while since I looked at a spectrogram, but yeah, you do see those, those transient effects um, entering and leaving a vowel with a specific consonant. Um, yeah. the, there's, there, you have the velar pinch and you also have sort of effects from the consonants, which is why if you're measuring vowels on a spectrogram, you always want to go a few pulses in so that you exclude those effects. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, yep. yeah, um, the, uh, so that's interesting. So, well, well, we haven't totally covered consonants. That that's just the the basics, because um, like um, in addition to a p, an m, or any other labial sound is also going to have that same like rise and drop. Uh, in addition to t, any kind of uh, coronal or or palatal sound is also going to have that rise, um, and so if you only look at the basic shape and you don't consider any of the other features of consonants, uh, then you're stuck with like three consonants total um, yeah. that you can represent, which is that that is far fewer consonants than either Silbogomero or Whistled Turkish or Whistled Tamazight have. Um, and so in addition to the vowel targets, whistled registers that preserve consonants will have specific consonant target frequency bands, uh, which are usually outside of the vowel range. And you can distinguish consonants partially by which frequency target they're aimed at. Um, so Silvogomero, for example, has one low target, uh, and you, you get all the labial sounds by coming off the vowel and shooting down below the vowel space. Um, mm -hmm. But you get different classes of high consonants depending on how sharp you make that rise in order to aim at a lower or higher target. Um, and Turkish, uh, the the uh, analysis is not entirely clear. Um, it's possible that this is another one of those production distinctions that isn't actually a perceptual distinction as well. Um, but whistled Turkish may have two separate uh, low frequency targets as well. Um, so if if you have consonants that um, stick within the vowel range and then, you know, two consonant 
targets above the vowel range, two consonant targets below. Uh, that's roughly the equivalent of five total places of articulation for, for different consonants. Um, I don't know of any whistled register so far that actually uses that many. Like, so Silvogamero has three. They don't use the, uh, the vowel space internal target at all. Um, Turkish might have four because uh, there's one high, one middle uh, that overlaps vowels, and then maybe two of the lower ones. Um, but uh, then in addition to that thing that you can kind of think of as being equivalent to place of articulation, um, there's also a distinction between continuous consonants, interrupted consonants, and delayed consonants. Um, and these, these don't really map consistently to different types of articulation. Um, so like, uh, for example, Hmong and uh, Silbogomero use completely different strategies for which kind of whistling articulation they associate with different classes of regular consonants. Um, so, so I can't, I can't tell you like continuous consonant articulation is equivalent to voiced consonants in normal speech uh, because it's just not. It's a it's its own totally different thing that gets mapped to modal normal modal language uh, categories in different ways by different uh, whistled language different whistle registers. Um, but what what is going on there, what they actually are, uh, is continuous consonants uh, don't have any break uh, in, mm. in the sound stream. Or if they do, it'll be a really short one. So you'll uh, come off the vowel, head towards the consonant frequency target. It'll probably get quieter um, because you're adjusting the amplitude to show where syllable boundaries are. Uh, but it'll either go to zero just for an instant and then come back or never go away completely. And you'll just have a continuous whistle that's aiming for uh, an outside target and then coming back into the vowel space. Um, an interrupted articulation, on the other hand, uh, will have just a hard cutoff. So you'll be whistling and then just stop, like no amplitude drop, just a, a sharp stop and then sharp restart again on the next vowel. Um, and then the delayed, the delayed articulation has a gradual drop off in amplitude. Um, we might need to edit some stuff here to make sure that I'm getting these actually correct. Um, delayed has a gradual drop to a period of silence and then a gradual rise again. Yeah, so um, so it's like a combination of continuous and interrupted, right? Huh? Just to just to be clear, that's a drop and rise in amplitude. In amplitude, yeah. So yeah. so continuous, it, it's kind of a hybrid between continuous and interrupted. Continuous will have a smooth drop in amplitude, but little or no silence. Interrupted will have a sharp drop and a distinct period of silence. Delayed will have the gradual drop-off and a distinct period of silence. Um, and yeah. not not all re whistle registers use all three of those distinctions. They might only use two, um, or they might not have any 
articulation distinctions. Um, but altogether, that gives you, you know, possibly up to five places of articulation and then three manners of articulation that are all distinguishable. Yeah. It is interesting to me, like, like phonetic analysis is involved in this because mm -hmm. like um, earlier you're talking about the pitch uh, effects from consonants mm -hmm. and that is like it's interesting to think about how aware are the people who speak these whistle registers of the fact that this is tracking the F2 line when people don't actually consciously perceive F1 and F2. They just perceive the whole gestalt as a vowel quality, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to, to think about, you know, how did this develop and how people ended up mapping these things. And so... So you said like the continuous delayed and what was the other and term? interrupted and and interrupted they don't totally map onto manners of articulation like uh, not not consistently um, within a particular language um, I have I'm not going to say for sure that they have to be consistent within a particular language uh, maybe there are examples where they aren't but of of the languages that I have found appropriate acoustic documentation for, um, they they will be mapped to consistent categories within that one language. But between languages, uh, all bets are off. Uh, so for for example, um, comparing Sobogomero and Hmong again, whistled Hmong, uh, Sobogomero uses the delayed articulation to transpose nasals, whereas Hmong uses the continuous articulation. Um, and honestly, the Hmong version makes a whole lot more sense to me there because nasals are in fact continuous sounds that don't have bits of silence in them. Uh, but for some reason, Sobogomero just didn't do that. Um, it the, the continuous space was already full of a bunch of other consonants, and so they just shoved nasals onto the delayed articulation for, I don't know why, because there was space there. Well, I mean, they also can pattern as stops, so maybe they're phonologically identifying with stops somehow. Yeah, but that, that, that's that could be it, too. Yeah. But it that that is interesting. Um, it's it's really interesting. So we've covered all of this. We've covered vowels and we've covered consonants, and also the difference between tonal and non-tonal languages transcoded into whistle. And yep. um, we talked about you know the the environment for this is you've got to talk to somebody over a distance or in a place where the the distance makes it difficult to just shout at them. Um, mm -hmm. And otherwise, you know, there's so much trade-offs and information loss and, and versatility loss that it's not 
that useful. Um, right. Although that that's not necessarily well. Well, hang on just just a minute. Um, I think it's it's worth reiterating that there are languages that could be transposed exactly with no information loss. You know, if if you've got fifteen consonants, there are there are plenty of natural languages that have fewer consonants than that. Um, but even in those cases, natural whistle registers don't do that. They they just don't preserve all of the consonant mm -hmm. distinctions, even though sometimes they could. That's that's interesting, and I I really wonder if that you you talked about the asymmetry between perception and production in Turkish. I yeah. think I wonder if some of that is perceptual clarity, like your it, it probably is will not. Yeah, they just will not hear the distinction, even though you can make it in a way that a computer would detect it. Yeah. Um, let's move on to what your actual project was. So we have a few minutes yes. to talk about. Yeah. So you actually developed a tool to help people make whistle registers you know, for yes. conlangers, and it is a whistle generator, basically. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. It's basically a voice synthesizer. Yeah. Yep. Uh, why? Why did you decide to do this, and uh, how? What does it do for us? Um, well, I, the decision to do it came about from two two intersecting directions. So, uh, first off, um, I had previously been working on the language Fish A. Uh, for which there is an example in one of the earlier show introductions. Um, and Fish A is quote unquote spoken by alien electric fish uh, in the medium of electric fields. So there is there is absolutely no way for me to produce with my own vocal equipment uh, the utterances of that language. Um, but like theoretically, you could stick an amplifier lead into the water next to an electric fish and plug that into a speaker and get out a sonic representation of those electric field patterns. Um, and so I wrote myself a synthesizer for the fish A language to provide examples of what's like, what is the closest that a human can get to experiencing how I imagine this language to actually work because it's not articulatable by humans at all. I have to make the computer do it to produce examples. So I did that. And then uh, later on, once I started looking into whistling languages, um, I got the idea, well, wouldn't it be neat uh, to have a conlang that is primarily in the whistled mode? That is, it's not a whistle register. It's a true whistle language. It's designed to use the medium of whistling as its primary representation and has all of its phonetics and phonology built around that instead. And so once I started working on that, I thought, well, I am not that good of a whistler. Uh, I, I can do it. I can make whistles. Um, but I do not 
actually speak Sobogamero. I don't speak Whistled Hmong. I don't speak Whistled Turkish. Um, I could probably learn to, but I'm a computer programmer and I already wrote one sound synthesizer. So it's going to be a lot easier for me to write a, an electronic synthesizer than it is to teach myself how to reliably produce the frequency contours of this conlang that I am inventing. Um, yeah, so I, I used the experience that I had with the Fish A synthesizer. Um, and initially I tried to come up with something that would be really specifically geared towards whistled speech um, and and have feature a lot of features that just make it really easy to describe the frequency contours of any old whistled language. Um, that turned out to be really, really difficult. So it's a little bit more general than that. Um, it can represent any whistled language, um, but it can also represent a lot more. Like you can make it do things that are either completely impossible for a human to whistle or just really difficult and don't happen to show up in reality. Um, mm -hmm. Which uh, that puts a little bit more uh, work on the user of the software uh, to describe the, the phonetics of their particular language in more depth, but it made it actually possible for me to write. So once again, trade-offs. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, you, you, you need to be doing your research before you use this. Uh, but yes. it is interesting that your, your solution was, I'm going to make a computer program. And I think after going over everything about whistle languages that you've dug up, it makes a lot of sense because I can whistle. I can whistle the Game of Thrones theme. I can I can whistle pretty well. But mastering all of these different techniques that are used in all these whistle languages all over the world might be a lot of effort to go through to make one mm -hmm. whistle register for, I don't know, maybe a movie or something. But mm -hmm. if I had cool, I can just play with all of the different possibilities and come up with something and then produce examples that I can train myself with, is what I'm yep. thinking. Yep. And, and uh, I should also point out that the, the wave files that this program spits out are pure sine waves. Um, so they, they are not going to have the same timber as a human whistle of any variety. But uh, going back to a very earlier part of our conversation, that turns out not to matter. Um, right. Writing a synthesizer that reproduces the timber of human voice, that's really hard. <laughs> writing a synthesizer <laughs> that produces pure sine waves, that's a lot easier. Um, and so that that was that fact that natural whistle registers don't care about timber uh, is a really foundational assumption that allows this software to exist. Um, right. It, it's just the frequencies. Um, and if you want, if you want a human sounding sample, then yeah, you got to generate the example and then train yourself to, to whistle along to it. Or, you know, 
contribute to my GitHub project and add additional, more natural sounding voices. Yeah. I mean, you could probably do some sort of machine learning or something to, to do that, but like, it, doing the doing it this way is definitely easier than trying to synthesize a human language using regular modal vo voicing. Uh, yes. Because I have heard many models of the human vocal track, and they're very impressive, but none of them sound like a person. Yep. <laughs> they just they just don't. But the the whistle, since the only important thing is the actual pitch, it sounds like it's a lot easier to generate something. If it doesn't sound realistic, at least it has enough information to have you understand yeah. and hear what it would sound like. Um, yeah. So that's it, 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 it's about like uh, using a slide whistle instead of just mm -hmm. your mouth. Right. So uh, where can people go to get your program and learn how to use it? Uh, so they can go to github.com slash conlang dash software dash dev slash whistler. Uh, I presume we can put a link in the show notes for that. Um, and I hope that the documentation there is enough to learn how to use it. Um, if you have never programmed a computer before, it'll probably be a little bit intimidating. Um, if you are comfortable with some programming language, then it shouldn't be too bad. Um, writing up the acoustic models that allow it to, to synthesize waveforms for a particular language. I have tried to make as intuitive as possible and as easy as possible, but like that's for me because so far I'm the only user of it. So it, it's basically like writing code in a very, very domain-specific programming language uh, right now. Hopefully there are ways to make that better, uh, but I don't know yeah. what they are yet. So again, if, if somebody's got ideas for how to make it nicer for non-technical people to use, go contribute to my GitHub project. Yeah, um, if, if somebody can, can turn this into like a, a nice little GUI there, you, you, you click some buttons and you can produce nice whistles, that would be great. I don't know if yeah. it's possible. but uh. well, And I do have uh, several examples uh, of how to use it, like what, what the configuration files look like. Um, so in, in the repository, there is an acoustic model for Tugum, which is my whistled conlang that I'm working on. Incidentally, the, the name Tugum is a kind of reverse of using a whistle register. Um, I find it really difficult to work on a language if I can't type it on the keyboard. So there is a romanization for this language that is primarily whistled, and the romanization induces an oral speech register for the whistled language. So Tugum is not actually the name of the language. <laughs> um, that's just the oral speech code for the actual name of the language. Um, but uh, I've got a model for that in there, uh, and I put together 
a a couple of different approaches to uh, models for synthesizing whistle registers of Tokipona, uh, which oh. can actually be represented. Tokipona has a small enough uh, inventory uh, and that it can be perfectly represented with no information loss in a whistled mode. Um, so you can see examples of how, a couple of different examples of how that is done. Um, and then I talked to uh, a guy on Reddit in the, the Conlang Reddit um, who was working on a whistled code uh, and uh, he sent me some descriptions of how he imagined it working and I wrote up a model for synthesizing that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I, I, I have to ask, can you actually produce the actual name of Tugan? Uh, I can if I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but not particularly reliably. Um, it's. I'll go ahead and give it a couple of tries. So it's something like, or ah, my. Let me take a drink of water and see if I can whistle better. <laughs> okay. So something like that. Okay. Um, the the name of the language is a a monotonic decrease in frequency, which along the way passes through all of the available phonemic consonant articulations. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you could send me a synthesized version just for reference that I, I can plug in there, but- uh, I'll, I will do that. That's, that's great. But so everybody go check out Logan's thing. And uh, on GitHub, and uh, if you have a sort of world-building use for this, I have had in the past ideas of, like, stories of, you know, shepherds in the mountains that have a whistle language and some character knows how to, how to speak it or something like that. You know, there's all kinds of places, as, as Logan, you've said, these pop up all over the world yep. in lots of different environments. Just the, just, you know, there are so many things you can imagine where either people are communicating across long distances out of convenience, or they live in an environment where even a relatively short distance doesn't allow you to communicate by just yelling at people. So the, the, there's just a lot of potential for storytelling and world building with these whistle registers. And the, I, it's really great that there's this tool that people can use to explore that and actually get an idea of what the whistle register will sound like with your language. Either do what Logan did and create a whistle-only language, or take your existing conlang, do your research, and like build a whistle register for it to put into whatever you want. So, uh, thank you, Logan, for coming and talking to me about whistle registers. Um, any welcome. final thoughts before we go? Um, yes, this is kind of a, a 
a left turn, but um, t- prior to working on Tugum, I didn't really care about writing systems all that much. Uh, but having get it, getting into researching whistle languages and and working on a whistle language, um, I had the epiphany that you could write down a whistle register uh, as a drawing of a spectrogram. And it would not be ridiculous to do that because you're only tracing a single frequency line on that spectrogram. Um, So I I have developed a script for Tugum based directly on the spectrographic representation of Tugum, um, which has gotten me excited about conscripts now. And, you know, you could theoretically, (laughs) you could do that with any whistle register. So, you know, if you're going to go out and create a whistle register for your otherwise normal conlang, uh, you know, maybe go wild and base your writing system off the whistled representation. That, that sounds great. I think it's going to look a little bit like shorthand, um, but... (laughs) I've been told that it looks kind of like Nastalik, so. Okay. Well, that's that's an interesting thing. Um, anyway, thank you again, Logan. And uh, I hope everybody goes and checks out that GitHub and anybody who wants to make a whistle register just goes and uses that tool and gets something made up. I think that would be really cool to see people exploring. It's a facet of language that I haven't seen that much of in the community, and I really like that there's a tool out there for it now. So uh, thank you, Logan. Uh, You have a good day. Yeah, and to everyone out there listening, happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Conlangery. Conlangery is entirely supported by our patrons at Patreon. To become a patron, go to patreon.com conlangery and pledge your monthly amount. As little as a dollar will help us out. A special thanks to Ezekiel Fordsmender, Margaret Ransdell Green, and all of those who have chosen to support us. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike license. You may use Conlangery episodes for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to us and you release your work under the same license. Conlangery's website was created by Bianca Richards. Our theme music is by Null Device and transcriptions of our episodes have been provided by Sarah Doparella. Casado.